Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Hello to everyone, and welcome to the broadcast. Good to have you joining us here today. I find that people are oftentimes curious about what goes on behind the scenes of particular places like, well, maybe a theme park, a movie set, or some other major production. I've had the opportunity to go behind the scenes at Disneyland as well as an NFL football game, and it changes your perspective. A few years ago, I was watching a documentary on the 1975 movie Jaws, the making of that movie, which was directed by Steven Spielberg. One of the most famous fright scenes in that movie takes place when the character played by Richard Dreyfuss, Hooper, dives into the ocean waters off the coast and he's going to investigate the hull of a a sunken fishing boat. And the boat had been attacked and sunk by a 25-foot great white shark. It was a very nerve-wracking scene that takes place underwater at night. Dreyfus is holding a handheld light as he's down underneath the murky waters. And the sense of being underwater in the ocean at night with a man-eating shark lurking about definitely creates a lot of nail-biting tension. However, as I'm watching this behind-the-scenes documentary, I learned that the scene was actually filmed in a large swimming pool in Northern California. Milk was added to the pool to give the waters an eerie murkiness. That was definitely a different perspective. As we return to our series in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to get a behind-the-scenes look, if you will, at the ministry of Jesus. Here in chapter 1, we find that ministry is not glitz and glamour. I think a lot of people think that, but it's actually blood, sweat, and tears. As we opened up things in our initial study of this gospel, Mark had skipped over the birth of Jesus, his childhood, and, well, the first 30 years of his life. As we discussed, the reason for this was Mark's target audience. He was writing to the Romans. And they were very pragmatic Gentiles, and those details then were of no interest to them. They were much more curious about the actions of Jesus, and therefore, Mark began his gospel account with Christ's baptism at the Jordan River. Now we pick up in verse 12 of Mark chapter 1, and we read these words. Immediately the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. The title of this message is Behind the Scenes. In the remainder of this first chapter, we're going to consider six movements in Christ's ministry, beginning with this behind-the-scenes look at his temptation in the wilderness. Mark begins in verse 12 with the word immediately. That's a word he uses dozens of times in his gospel. And once again, it underscores the fast-paced nature of the way he wrote his gospel. If you remember, that's why we titled this series, Good News for Busy People. Immediately then, after Jesus' baptism at the Jordan River, the Spirit drove Jesus into a desert wilderness area that was adjacent to the Jordan. 
There in verse 13, Mark devotes just one sentence to describing the 40-day temptation. Some time ago, I was driving along a street, and I noticed a small yellow sign on a tree that was posted, and it simply read, Lost Cat, and it had a telephone number underneath it. And I had to laugh because there was no other information. I thought to myself, do I just call that number every time I see a cat out wandering around in case it's their missing kitty? You know, a little more information or even a picture would have been helpful. Well, Mark doesn't give us a lot of information either. Matthew's gospel gives us the most details on the temptation of Jesus there at that time. Luke has some details. John doesn't mention it at all. And Mark sums it up very briefly, basically in one sentence. But even though Mark doesn't give us many details, he does give us a little bit of unique information. Going back to verse 12, immediately after his baptism, Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. The word drove is a strong word. It's meant to emphasize the importance and the timing of this testing. Satan was tempting Jesus to try and disqualify him from the cross while God was using it to show that Jesus was sinless. Our first ministry movement then in this message, if you're taking notes, is the preparation of Jesus. The temptation of Jesus was a period of preparation before his ministry to demonstrate that he was sinless and qualified to go to the cross to atone for our sins. That wilderness area, by the way, was probably the same desert area that John the Baptist had been living in where he was eating those locusts and wild honey. Mark gives us a unique detail that Jesus was with the wild beasts. Some of us might wonder, well, what kind of wild beasts would have been living in the first century Judean desert wilderness? And it's very likely that that list would include desert leopards, wolves, desert vipers, scorpions, hyenas, jackals, foxes, and wild boars. Before Adam and Eve sinned, they had dominion or control over the animals in the Garden of Eden. But after the fall, the animal kingdom was affected by the curse, and it put them at odds with each other, and animals were no longer under the control of mankind. But Jesus, you'll notice, retained control over the wild animals. They were subject to him. In the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the second Adam, and I think it's significant that Mark records Jesus having dominion over the animals just as the first Adam did prior to the, cor to the curse. We also see this theme of Christ's control over the animals throughout the Gospels. There's many examples. For example, um, Jesus instructed Peter to throw a fish hook into the Sea of Galilee, pull out the first fish that is on the hook, it will have a coin in its mouth, and Peter could use that coin to pay the temple tax. Jesus later rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey that had never been ridden before. And Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him three times before a particular rooster had crowed twice. Along with the dominion that Jesus held, it was a preview of coming attractions because in the millennial kingdom, animals will no longer be at odds with each other or with mankind. And we read that in particular passages like Isaiah chapter 11. Let's continue our reading here in verse 14. It says, Now after John was put into prison, John the Baptist, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Our second movement now is the preaching of Jesus. Mark tells us that John the Baptist was arrested and put into prison, which probably indicates why Jesus headed up north to Galilee. The time for Christ's own arrest and trial had not come yet, so after John was arrested, Jesus relocated up to Galilee. So far then, we've seen desert wilderness and a prison, not a very glamorous behind-the-scenes ministry, if you will. There in Galilee, Jesus began preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. This is the good news that by faith, people can enter God's kingdom. The simple, life-changing message was repent and believe in the gospel. As someone well said, repentance is the soul's divorce from sin. And repentance and faith always go together. Well, Mark keeps the pace moving quickly, so we'll do the same. Let's pick up in verse 16. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in their boats, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Our third ministry movement now is the promise of Jesus. It's his promise to these fishermen to make them fishers of men. Since his hometown of Nazareth was about 20 miles away from the Sea of Galilee, it's safe to assume that Jesus had probably been there several times in his earlier years prior to his ministry. He undoubtedly knew that area quite well and had probably spent time watching the fishermen there, the local fishermen, working and um, boarding their boats and pulling their nets and so forth. Manual labor is a great preparation for ministry. Jesus was a carpenter, and many of his disciples were fishermen. By nature and by trade, fishermen are patient. They're hardworking, they're strong, they're courageous, and they're tenacious. And we know from the Gospels that these men would sometimes fish all night and catch nothing. They also spent a lot of time mending their nets like James and John were doing here in this chapter. I wouldn't have the patience to be a fisherman like that. If I had been out fishing all night and caught nothing, I would not be mending my nets. I'd be piling them up, dousing them with gasoline, and setting them on fire. Now, we want to recognize that this wasn't the first time that these men had met Jesus. This is very important. John's gospel gives us some earlier details. John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel had all come from the Galilee area and gone down to this Judean wilderness area where John was baptizing and calling people to repentance and preparation of the Messiah. It's interesting, and I think some Bible students miss this, that these men had left their homes and their jobs to travel what would have been about five days by foot to go and hear John the Baptist preach. It seems that they were sensing their need for repentance and to start following God in a relationship. John, the brother of James and Andrew, then became disciples of John the Baptist. Then Peter and the others also came to hear John the Baptist preach. John the Baptist then pointed his disciples towards Jesus. He said to them, behold, the Lamb of God. So John and Andrew started following Jesus. Afterwards, Andrew brought his brother Simon to meet Jesus 
and uh, Jesus gave him the nickname of Peter, which means rock. Pro wrestler turned actor Dwayne Johnson is not the first person to be nicknamed the rock. After that, the others also met Jesus. So my point is they had all met Jesus there at the Jordan, and they were spiritually impacted by him. Even Nathaniel declared that he was the son of God. So then, would this have been their time of conversion? Hmm. It's really hard to say. But after John the Baptist was arrested and thrown into prison, as we read in verse 14, all of those men returned to their homes and to their jobs. Well, now Jesus comes up to Galilee where these fishermen are working, and he calls them to follow him in full-time ministry, fishing for men's souls. This then helps us to understand why they willingly left their family fishing business so immediately to follow Jesus. They already understood that he was at the least an important rabbi, and perhaps they began to understand to some degree that maybe he was the Messiah. Some of you know about Samuel Morse. You've heard that name. He helped invent the telegraph, and he developed the Morse code. Samuel Morris' life was going along nicely. He was content in his particular career, which was a painter. He was a very successful painter. At one point, he had been commissioned to go to Washington from his home in Connecticut, and he was called upon to paint a particular portrait. While he was there painting, Morse received a letter by horseback messenger that his wife had taken ill. He left the painting and immediately traveled back to his home in New Haven, but by the time he arrived home, his wife had already died and been buried. The letter by horseback had taken too long to reach him. Morse was devastated by his wife's death and by the long delay in receiving the news of her illness. So he stopped painting and started working on a means of quicker, long-distance communication. He helped invent the telegraph, and a telegraph line was set up between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. It was about 40 miles long. And on May 24, 1844, a large crowd gathered to watch Morse tap a message using a code that he had developed, the Morse code. The message was only four words long, and it was taken from Numbers 2323, What God Has Done. In moments, that message arrived, and the beginning of a quicker, Long-distance communication was now underway. Spiritually speaking, it's not enough for any of us to simply be converts. Jesus is calling us to be his disciples who are willing to follow him and to tell others what God has done. He calls us to become fishers of men. Well, now we're picking up in verse 21, and Mark records how Jesus went to the town of Capernaum. That's by the Sea of Galilee there. And he went to the local synagogue on the Sabbath day where he healed a demon-possessed man. Then at the house of Peter there in Capernaum, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law who was stricken with a high fever. Afterwards, in verse 32, we read that at evening, when the sun had set, they brought to Jesus all those who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Our fourth ministry movement here behind the scenes is the power of Jesus. One of the cities along the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum. 
Uh, today, it's just a city of ruins, and when you go on tours to Israel, they almost always visit those ruins at Capernaum, and that includes a 4th century synagogue that was built over the original synagogue from the 1st century, the one that we're reading about here in this chapter. So Jesus entered the synagogue there in Capernaum, and when we open up the New Testament to a gospel like Mark, we suddenly read about these synagogues, but they're not mentioned in the Old Testament. So where do they come from? Well, synagogues began to arise in the days of the Babylonian captivity. The temple had been destroyed, so the Jewish captives needed a place to gather for fellowship and prayer. They started in their homes, and eventually small meeting places were constructed in the community. After some of the Jews returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt a smaller temple, those synagogues remained, and the main reason was because many Jews were still living outside of Jerusalem in places like Persia, Egypt, Greece, and Rome. Synagogue is a Greek word meaning congregation. They continued to rise up going into the New Testament, and they were eventually in every large Jewish community. In time, the synagogue became the local place for reading scripture, prayer, fellowship, and worship, while the temple was more the place of sacrifice and offerings. The significant thing for us as Christians about synagogues is that they became the template for the early church and for places of worship. Just like the Jews, the early church first met in their homes, but eventually small buildings were erected in communities as places of worship, fellowship, and Bible study. We still refer to the church family as the congregation, again from the Greek word for synagogue. We also learned something that might surprise some Christians here. Demons go to church. <laughs> there was a man attending this service in verse 23. He's demon-possessed. Not only do demons go to church, they know who Jesus is, this demon did, and they acknowledge his power and deity. That's more than can be said for a lot of unsaved people today. Notice that this demon addresses him as Jesus of Nazareth in verse 24. The demons are the only ones in the New Testament to speak to the Lord and use the name Jesus. The disciples called him Master, Lord, Teacher, or Rabbi, as did others. Demons calling the Son of God Jesus was intended to be disrespectful using his human name. In his divine power then, Jesus commanded this demon to leave the body of the man he was possessing. We don't know how often this demon-possessed man had attended these synagogue services before, but I doubt that this was his first visit. Before Jesus showed up, the demons had nothing to fear from the normal synagogue service. But Jesus commanded this demonic spirit to leave, and it did, and the people were amazed. They were astonished by the authority of his teaching, and they were amazed by the demonstration of his power. But take note, people can be astonished and amazed and still remain unconverted and unsaved. It's also worth noting that half of the Lord's recorded miracles took place around the Sea of Galilee. It was a major location for ministry for Jesus. From the synagogue there in Capernaum, Jesus and his disciples went over to the house of Peter. Again, today when you visit Capernaum, there's some house ruins close to the synagogue, and it is believed, and I think it is, to have been the house of Simon Peter. There's good documentation for that, reasons for that. I don't have time to get into it now, but um, I think we have good reason to believe that they have found the house of Simon Peter. 
and was there at Peter's house that his mother-in-law was sick with a fever, so Jesus healed her and caused the fever to leave. From this incident, we learn that Peter was married. In fact, that's later confirmed in 1 Corinthians 9. The mother-in-law was living with them, which probably means that her husband was deceased. We continue to see the power of Jesus as he then heals multitudes of people that evening. They all started coming to him at Peter's house, the sick, the demon-possessed, and those with diseases. It says that the whole city was gathered at the door. Interestingly, Jesus would later say in John 10, I am the door. In his divine power, Jesus cast out many demons and healed many people that night. And We might wonder, why was there such a large concentration of sick people in that area? Well, as it turns out, there was and still are some thermal hot springs in that area where the city of Tiberias along the shores of the Sea of Galilee was built in 20 A.D., So many people would travel to that particular area in hopes that the thermal hot springs might offer them relief from their various ailments. Jesus uh, healing them, probably he made that area his base of operations for that very reason, because there were so many sick people that needed healing, and that gave him the opportunity to demonstrate his divine power and then give the gospel message. Today, Jesus still heals people, not everyone, but many. Some are healed instantly, others through medical help and expertise, and others just receive God's grace to endure their circumstances like Paul did. One day soon, though, all believers will be made perfect and whole in new glorified bodies that dwell in heaven with Jesus. That's why in Romans 8, Paul reminds us that the temporary sufferings of this life are not to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. This refers to our glorified bodies where all suffering and pain will be permanently removed. So hang in there, dear brother or sister. If you're suffering, we'll all be home together soon. Well, now let's look at verse 35 where we read that in the morning, having having risen a long time before daylight, Jesus went out and departed to a solitary place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found them, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. When we read about the vast amounts of people that started lining up at sunset the night before, the Greek wording indicates that the people kept on bringing the sick. So Jesus would have been up very late that previous night, healing people and casting out demons. And here now we read that Jesus is up very early in the morning before daylight. And his reason for getting up so early was to have some time by himself to spend time time in prayer with the Father. Our fifth ministry movement then is the praying of Jesus. This is a very significant and important behind-the-scenes picture of Jesus' ministry, praying privately. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said, Neglect of private prayer is the locust which devours the strength of the church. His busy ministry and long late hours did not keep Jesus from meeting with the Father early in the morning. We want to make sure that none of us miss this fact. If Jesus, the Son of God, made it a priority to spend time in prayer with the Father, how much more do we need to do the same? 
the example of Jesus reminds us that we don't find time to pray. We make time to pray. And when we do, we tap into that power and fellowship through our time in prayer with the Father. Some believers will spend hours scrolling through Facebook and Instagram, but not much time in prayer. Notice with me in verses 36 to 37 how Peter and the other disciples went looking for Jesus. And when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. (laughs) Oh my, doesn't that sound familiar? Perhaps that's how you feel at home with the family or at work with the employees. Everyone is looking for you and everyone wants a piece of your time and attention. Well, let's follow the example of Jesus and not let the tyrant of urgency keep us from our devotional time with the Lord. Well, let's go to verse 40 and let's read some final verses together. We read now, a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, kneeling down before him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus was moved with compassion. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was clean. He was cleansed. What a great story that is. In verse 41, we read that Jesus was moved with compassion. And this Greek word describes heartfelt sympathy and pity, sincere pity that comes from deep within. So our sixth and final ministry movement is the pity of Jesus. I have a little running joke that I like to repeat with my friends. They're probably tired of hearing it, but if we're watching like a sports event or something and an athlete jumps really high, I like to say, wow, he's a leaper and Jesus loves the leapers. Well, Jesus loves the lepers and he healed many of them in the gospels. In contrast, did you know that only three of all the many lepers in the Old Testament were ever healed? And who those lepers were just might surprise you. The first leper ever healed by God was Moses. Remember when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush on top of Mount Sinai in Exodus 4? God was calling Moses to deliver the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, and Moses was very reluctant to do so. So one of the signs that God gave to him was to turn his hand leprous and then to heal it instantly. The second leper ever healed by God in the Old Testament was Miriam, the sister of Moses. She and Aaron were grumbling against Moses because after his wife died, Moses married an Ethiopian woman. So Miriam and Aaron began grumbling against the authority of their brother Moses, and God was not happy about it. So he struck Miriam with leprosy. That lasted about a week, and it's recorded there in Numbers chapter 12. And then after that week, God healed Miriam's leprosy. The third leper healed in the Old Testament was uh, Naaman, the Syrian military commander. We read about that in 2 Kings 5. Naaman was a very prideful man who expected God to heal him on his own terms, but God humbled him first and then healed him second. Leprosy is a vivid illustration of sin because it is deadly, it spread from person to person, and it isolated the leper from all others all of which are pictures of sin. In verse 40, this helpless leper coming to Jesus is a picture of a lost and hopeless sinner coming to Christ. He pleaded with Jesus, humbled himself before him, and expressed faith in Christ's ability to heal him. Jesus being moved with compassion illustrates how God loves the world and is not willing that any should perish. 
Jesus expressed his willingness to heal, and most moving of all, Jesus touched him. Touching a highly contagious leper was dangerous, but Jesus never hesitated to touch people. Today, with the ongoing concern of the coronavirus, some people are hesitant to come in contact with others. Although, I saw something the other day that really puzzled me. I was parking my car at the local hardware store, and in the parking space in front of me, a guy drove up. He's wearing a mask inside his car, and he's all by himself. Then as soon as he opened his car door and stood up, he took the mask off and threw it on the car seat and then proceeded to go into the store. Someone needs to explain that one to me. Anyway, it had been a long time, I'm sure, since anyone had touched this man that we read about with leprosy. Perhaps some of you need a healing touch from the Lord right now. It may be physical, it may be spiritual, it may be emotional. Let me encourage you to reach out to the Lord in prayer right now and invite him to touch you and to heal you in Jesus' name. And in the meantime, may God bless you until our next podcast.